Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up a Bible to Nahum chapter 2. On to chapter 2. In the book of Nahum, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in a blue pew Bible, and you can find that on page 782. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about a man named Austin Henry Laird, who in 1839 left his position at a law office in London and began to pursue a life in archaeology, traveling across Europe, traveling across the Middle East upon his passion for history and wanting to learn about and literally dig up ancient civilizations. And throughout the the 1840s, he played a part in unearthing these kind of great ancient cities in a region that was, um, at the time, in the 1840s, known as Ottoman Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. But due to his just historical passions and his biblical knowledge, there was one city in particular he kept thinking about. One city throughout that first decade of digging that he kept coming back to in his own mind, in his own heart. And then finally, in 1849, at age 32, Layard turned his attention to a mound opposite the city of what is modern-day Mosul in Iraq, on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. And there, in 1849, he found it. Layard is credited for discovering the ancient ruins of the city of Nineveh. And he found the place, the palace of King Sennacherib, who is likely the king uh, during the writing of the book of Nahum that we are preaching through. He found lots of pieces of artwork, and most importantly, a large number of tablets and ancient writings of not only the Assyrian Empire, but of the other cities that they have conquered. This kind of treasure trove of tablets, which revealed much about historical times and ancient civilizations that are still in museums throughout the world today, once they were decoded and translated. Layard would go on to write a book in 1853 called Discoveries in the Ruins of Nineveh, which was extremely popular at the time all throughout the world. And today, did you know, you could buy the Discoveries in the Ruins of Nineveh for 13 bucks on Amazon for a paperback. But it gets better for you Kindle readers. You could buy Discoveries in the Ruins of Nineveh for a cool $3.70. I have not done it yet, but maybe one of you will. Um... We know from historical sources that in 612 B.C., I know I'm throwing a lot of years out, 612 B.C., Nineveh, the capital then of the Assyrian Empire, was besieged and overtaken by the Babylonians. That happened in 612. It was quite literally wiped off the map, burned and flooded, never again to be rebuilt, and in time swallowed up by the dust of the earth, where it remained for 2,461 years until Layard began to dig. History will tell you that the Babylonians were responsible for Nineveh's downfall and the downfall of the Assyrian Empire, which is true. But it's also true that biblical history will tell you that God orchestrated all of it. And that gets us to Nahum chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And just as we go into it, essentially what we're covering this morning is a battle account we're going to read about a battle, talk about a battle. Welcome to church. Nahum 2, verses 1 through 10. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. 
as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Verse 6, the river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girl is lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Amen. Nahum chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10 is widely considered a masterpiece of ancient literature, even amongst those who do not believe the Bible is the Word of God. Just as a piece of literature, it is virtually unmatched in its graphic detail of an ancient battle account. And so it is widely known in literature circles, again, way beyond even Christianity, because of just the time it was written and the detail it includes. And on top of it, you can't tell it as much in the English language, but it was set to poetry, meaning it was written to be sung. These verses written to be sung and written as to be visualized. Maybe even as I read it, you could envision a scene. Maybe things were popping into your mind, trying to picture what is happening as Nahum is describing it. Placing yourself there at the walls of Nineveh. You could close your eyes and see it. If you tried to, maybe you could feel it. Um, and readers today, unlike the original readers back in Israel. Uh, you don't just have maybe your mind's eye and your imagination, but for better or worse, you picture maybe ancient battle scenes from movies or TV shows that you've watched, right? That final battle. Uh, this past weekend, Rochelle and I decided, uh, made the uh, collective decision to introduce our children to the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Our kids are nine, seven, and then we have twins who are five. We were like, can they handle this? And I'll just tell you this, the older two loved it. Uh, the two five-year-olds, about a half hour in, asked if they can go to bed. Uh, so it might have been a slight miscalculation with them, but on the bright side, they asked to go to bed. Uh, so that feels like a win. Um, but you maybe have these kind of movies in mind of the, these kind of these battle scenes, or that you have read in other books or comics or whatnot. Um, but from our perspective... What's most interesting about Nahum 2 is not just the detail of the account, but the timing. I said earlier that we know the Babylonians conquered Nineveh in 612 BC. The book of Nahum was written anywhere from 660 BC to 612 BC, which means this. This, uh, this uh, prophetic book was written while they were at the peak of their powers. The most powerful, the most brutal, the most well-protected, the wealthiest city in the ancient world. They boasted in their unparalleled power. They boasted in their brutal tactics they used to overcome their enemy. The plunder they brought back within their city walls. Which means this. What we just read speaks in, city, in detail of the most powerful city in the world's downfall 
anywhere from five to 40 years before it happened. Before it happened. And not only that, but it was written by this small town Judean author, this no-namer, whose very people were under constant threat and attack by the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire as he was writing it. So just as a little bit of an aside, uh, Nahum 2, kind of just tucked in the middle of your Bible, provides compelling evidence to the divine inspiration of the word. There's an apologetic in this, that it described a battle before it took place. And the description of the battle aligns with the documents we have from Babylonian sources of how it happened. And even again, who, those who don't think Nahum chapter 2 is the word of God have to concede to the fact that there is pretty good alignment between Nahum 2 and what actually happened. So, here's how I want to unpack it this morning. I want us to walk through the stages of the battle that ended up taking place through Nahum's words so that you can envision it. That the word of God just gave you an account of a battle to be read, to be understood, to be unpacked, and then to extract some timeless takeaways for the church today. So, we're going to walk through this battle together, through the stages, starting with verses 1 and 2. We see Nineveh is warned. Nineveh is warned. Uh, It starts with calls for Nineveh to prepare for invasion. This brutal, wealthy, powerful empire, uh, God, through Nahum, is, is saying, get ready. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. The irony being that there is no preparation that will be able to stop that which is about to happen. You do whatever you want, Nineveh. You be as prepared as you can be. It will change nothing. Showing just the confidence of the Lord in this. This was not a secret attack. This was get yourself ready. It's coming. And you won't be able to stop it. Um, It reminds me, those maybe college football fans, like a football team, the quarterback calling the play at the line, telling the defense, this is what we're about to run. You can't stop it. A point guard uh, telling the play to his team in the half court saying, this is what we're about to do, you can't stop it. You baseball fans, the few of you that are still out there watching the World Series, right? It's the pitcher saying, I'm going to throw a fastball, you can't hit it. Get ready. I'm coming. There's no stopping it. Nineveh is warned. The Lord will restore his people. Which goes to the next scene in the text. Verses 3 and 4, the invader is described. We see that their shields are red. Their warriors are clothed in red. The chariots are shining, darting around like torches. They're like flaming torches on the move, going faster than people are used to seeing things move in the ancient world. Like, what is that? And God is carrying out his purpose through the Babylonians. This is important about... as we'll get into later, just God's providence over the world, that God is carrying this out, and he's choosing to use the Babylonians to carry out his perfect purposes. Again, ancient literature from the Babylonians tell us that they often were clothed in red, aligning with Nahum 2 written well before. And it tells us that the campaign that they had against Nineveh was not a middle-of-the-night attack. attack. It was not just over a quick weekend that they overtook the city. It was a three-year process to besiege the city. One major dynasty preparing for battle against another over years. And as they moved closer to the center city walls, the sight of the army was overwhelming. 
because they were rare in that day that they added color to their army, clothed in red, shields uh, covered in red. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary work, suggested that the armies were fond of the color red and dyeing even their shields with the red's bull's hide to frighten the enemy at the sight of a big red wave that is coming. It's one thing to see a lot of people heading towards you, to see this unison of color moving towards you like a wave, like you can't stop it. And sources tell us that they chose red to hide signs of their own blood because they didn't want to give the enemy any confidence if they were bleeding. So you can't tell. Is that just their shield or are they bloody? doesn't matter. They're coming. This is the uh, invader that is described. Keep going. Next scene we see is verse 5. The defense attempt recounted. The defense attempt recounted. Nineveh, at this point, summons their own leaders. Uh, if you can picture it in your mind, what they see is that they're, they're essentially running roughshod throughout the suburbs, outside the center city walls, darting all over the place. And, and the leaders are now summoned to come back to the center city to defend the palace, to defend the walls. And so there's a call that goes out, right? Again, this is Nineveh, mighty men, mighty warriors, most powerful empire in the world. Come on back. Come defense. But what happens? Verse 5. Yet they stumble on their way. Not so powerful after all. They've been exposed in the face of God, in the face of another army. What was once seen as mighty and untouchable is now literally stumbling back to the walls to, defense, to defend it. And we keep going. Next scene, verses 6 through 8. Nineveh overtaken. Verse 6 Bibles are open. Look at verse 6. In some ways, it's the most powerful verse in this account, not because of its grand words, but in its simple brevity. The capital of the Assyrian Empire, centuries of power and strength, are washed away in a single verse. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Just like Again, going back to the alignment of the Babylonian sources from their battle, they reveal that the key to moving in on their city at this point, after three years of besieging, was that it was in the early spring. It was during the rainy season in this region of the world. And it was an especially wet, rainy season where the Tigris River flooded and breached part of the wall. So they saw this as an opportunity where the wall was breached from the river, allowing them now to invade and overcome their defenses. You know what that tells me? It's almost like there's a higher power who controls the weather. We just sang over and over again, our God reigns. And it's true, in part, because God controls the rains. And he brought a wet season that breached the city wall, that gave the Babylonian green light to go and take it over. Inhabitants are now removed. See in verses 7 through 8, they're exiled out. Nineveh is like a pool, indicating the flooding, melted away, indicating the burning that would happen, defenseless, and despite cries, halt, halt, stop, stop, no one turns back. Nineveh is overtaken, which then gets you to verses 9 and 10. The city is plundered. I've spoken about in the last couple of weeks about Nineveh being known for its great wealth throughout the Old Testament, its power, its prestige. Uh, that, wealth, that wealth was built on the back of plundering other nations. 
plundering other kingdoms and cities. Um, one of the ancient slabs that was found in the city uh, when it was dug up by Layard in the 1840s uh, revealed uh, an example of the kind of plunder they took from someone else. So um, this is going to be on the screen. This is an example of them recording the wealth they got from another city. His mean the Aramaean's royal tent. His golden palanquin. I don't even know what a palanquin is, all right? But it was golden. Uh, his royal throne. Golden scepter. Golden couch, golden footstool, his weapons, his implements of war. The great host of Acer plundered for three days and nights and carried off countless spoil. Look, 90,580 people. Somebody counted those. 2,500 horses, 610 mules, 854 camels. Not 853, not 855. The plunder from one city. And that's how Nineveh got wealthy. And now, here's the power in it. Just like that, a city once so rich, amassing wealth over a century, is themselves plundered, emptied, made a wasteland. The predator has become the prey. And in what seems like a moment, an ancient city at the peak of their powers is wiped away, never to be seen from again until a 32-year-old British archaeologist started digging in the ground 2,400 years later. Notably, in all the remains they have found in Nineveh, they found no treasure. They found no gold, no valuables. Why? Nahum 2.10. She was pillaged. She was plundered. She was stripped. Nahum 2 is a divinely inspired battle account in your Bible. Accounted in, described in stages. Nineveh is warned. The invader described. The defense recounted. Nineveh overtaken. And the city plundered. Wiped off the map according to the sure and prophetic word of God, given through a no-name Judean prophet no one's ever heard of, Nahum. So, so what? Should we close in prayer? It's been a nice little history lesson about an ancient battle. Perhaps some of you were interested in that like I was. Perhaps others of you, not so much. But so What? I realize you're here this morning. Life is happening to you like it's happening to all of us. Maybe you're struggling here this morning, anxious. Heart is heavy for yourself, for loved ones. And if you're honest, on a rainy Sunday morning, an ancient battle wasn't exactly on the must-listen list. I first would have you consider that, again, the God of the universe and his inspired revelation through his word for all people in all places, including a chapter that described a battle. So there is a so what in here for us. One that I believe can speak into your life today. And I don't claim to be able to give you every aspect of the so what, but I do want to try. And I want to finish now, with the rest of our time, to give you three timeless takeaways from Nahum chapter 2. What are three timeless takeaways we can take from an ancient battle story that when drilled into your soul will provide comfort in all times? Starting with number one, first takeaway, is God's providence. 
you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that word down. I think in many ways we need to recapture this word in the church today, God's providence. Um, I've told you each of the first two weeks of Nahum that the primary goal and intention for this series is to sharpen our understanding of God, to sharpen our understanding of who God is, to allow this book to do that for us and therefore change our lives. And at the top of the list for today of sharpening our understanding of God, a battle account prophesying the downfall of the most powerful city in the world, which stunningly aligns with how it actually played out according to historical sources, spotlights God's providence. What is providence? I'm going to put a definition on the screen. It's simple, but it's impactful. God's providence is the working of his power to uphold. We'll go to the next slide. I think we have the definition on that one. Yeah, the working of his power to uphold, guide, and care for his creation. The working of his power to uphold, guide, and care for his creation. Um, Some theologians have used the phrase to describe providence, continual creation. It is God's continual creation. Meaning, he didn't just create the world in Genesis 1 and then step back from it and watch it unfold like a clockmaker. No, God's providence says he is actively Actively, moment by moment, upholding, guiding, caring. Actively, moment by moment, upholding, guiding, caring for his creation. It is his continual creation. What that means, among other things, is that nothing and no one is too small to be constantly upheld. No person, no situation is too small for the God of the universe to constantly uphold. That's what it means. And it also means this, that no nation... No city, no empire is too big to be constantly upheld, guided, either up or down. I want to take you now to one of, if not my favorite chapters in the Bible, and it's Isaiah chapter 40. If your Bible is open, I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah 40. If you're in the Blue Pew Bible, you can go to page 599. I want you to see it. Isaiah is a prophet that may have been a contemporary of Nahum. It's possible they even knew each other, or at the very least knew of each other, because of the identical phrasing that they've used in their books that we saw last week. So they at least knew of each other, if not personally knowing each other. And Isaiah chapter 1 through chapter 39 is a long and direct condemnation of Israel's sin. It is a long recounting of Israel's sin and their rebellion against God. It's tough to almost read through Isaiah 1 through 39. It's warning them of the judgment that's to come. And it's a relentless warning. The affliction that they will endure unless they repent. Affliction, which by the way, will come through wicked nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. All under God's providence. 39 chapters. If at that point you're reading that in your Bible reading plan, certainly if you're living in Israel at this time, reading the scroll of Isaiah for the first time, you are exhausted by your own sin. You're in that moment of life where you're just so discouraged at your own brokenness. Have you been there? It's not that other people are condemning you. You're just discouraged at just the, the struggle that is within, the state of your own heart. They're concerned whether or not God will abandon them at that point. Will God forsake them now? How will they be able to endure all the evil in the world that's now at their doorstep from these other nations? How are they going to endure it? And then you turn to Isaiah 40. And it starts like this in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Remember in the first week I told you what the meaning of the name Nahum is? It's comfort. And how does the rest of Isaiah 40 provide comfort after all that was seen and written about in Isaiah 1 through 39? It is a glorious chapter about God's providence. That's Isaiah 40. It's an entire chapter about God's providence. Um, I'm going to show you just pieces of it, and it'll also be on the screen if you're not there in your Bible. Verse 8, look at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And in particular interest to Nahum chapter 2, put your eyes down to verse 12 through 15 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And close the dust of the earth in a measure, and weigh the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then verse 17. It's the last one we'll look at in this chapter. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The providence of God leaves no room for competition between him and any other power. It leaves no room, no questions, no margin between the power of God and any other power this world has ever seen. And John Calvin in his work Institute says about providence that when truly understood, quote, nothing is more profitable than the knowledge of this doctrine. That this impacts your every day if you'll let it, if you'll allow it. That the more you think on it, it's not just a thinking exercise. It's not just words and fancy words and doctrine. It will shape you. Because this doctrine, when drilled into your soul, it does not offset real pain and real suffering that you have experienced and you will experience. Nor does it remove human responsibility. Either our own responsibility for the choices we make in our life or the responsibilities of others, whether it be individuals or nations or kingdoms or empires. It does not offset any of that. But it does say, hear me please, it does say that when confronted with horrible circumstances, untold evil and pain, uh, confusing situations, I don't know what to do right now, that when you're confronted with that, that we must never forget that God is ultimately behind everything that is happening to us and around us. Now, that can be hard to swallow at times. But ultimately, when you dig deeper into that, you go deeper into that well, you will find that for the people of God, it brings comfort. Even what feels bitter at first will lead to comfort. And that when we are in those situations, whether you are in it now or you will be soon, confusing situations, untold evil, difficult circumstances, that you would ask God to give you the faith to see his hand in every encounter. It's in all of it. God, let me see your hand in this. I'm struggling to see it right now. Every hard moment we have, he has a hand in it. 
Not necessarily causing it, but certainly providential over it. And so for the people of God, providence is a comfort to rest in. It's not a problem to rage against. And when you drill down into the providence of God, you will be able to face your life with poise and with courage in the way that God has designed you to in the midst of the heart. That's the first takeaway. Let's keep going to number two. An ancient battle account spotlights God's justice. God's justice. I keep returning to this point to remind you that Israel is receiving this word from Nahum while being surrounded and attacked by Nineveh. While they're being besieged in Jerusalem and their own armies are being threatened. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 20. And so this battle account of what's going to happen at some point in the future, and it is sure, and Nineveh will fall, it would bring a glorious hope for the bruised and battered nation of Israel. That God's promise to bring full justice to the oppressor and to rescue his people, it is sure his justice will not fail. Nahum chapter 2 is the promise of a God who gets angry at evil. He is angry. And his anger will not go unheeded. He won't just forget about it. Who will, again, back to Exodus 34, by no means clear the guilty. He is merciful and gracious, but he will by no means, by no means, clear the guilty. That that in part is how to maintain hope in evil times for the people of God. God's justice will not fail. It will come for every oppressor that has ever existed or exists today. And Nahum chapter 2 tells us that there is a space to lament evil and to lament the difficulty of the moment that you might be facing while maintaining hope that a just, fair, and promise-keeping God will prevail. That there's room for both. You can lament. God calls us to lament. We, we preached through the book of Joel last year. Right? The, the whole book is about lamenting, calling you to lament evil and brokenness. We, we live in a broken world. And we're called to lament that. But we have space to lament that while clinging to hope that God's justice will always prevail. And at the risk of trying to, uh, you know, uh, sounding, sounding corny here, uh, the, the bigger picture of the world today kind of feels like we're being surrounded. It, it, it kind of feels like a besieging. Like you kind of just look at the grand landscape of what's just going on in the world. Honestly, it doesn't look great. International conflicts with brutal terrorist attacks and complex wars and dynamics in the world that we know it, it's kind of happening out there, but, but we personal loved ones um, that, that are more directly impacted than we are, but we also know that in a globalized world, we're like everyone's impacted by this and will be. Uh, acute division in our own country just feels just more divisive now than ever. And maybe we always kind of say that, maybe it's contemporary bias, bias but on the other hand, I don't know. Feels pretty ugly right now. Within our own people, our own government, about how to think about those wars, how people are even talking about those things, and just realizing, oh my gosh, like we're pretty divided here. Our own democracy feels more delicate heading into an election year than maybe it ever has. There's conspiracy theories all over the place, to the point where it's getting harder and harder to know what's real. Are you like me in this? Anytime you read something, see something, you got to go like, is this real? I don't even know what's real and what's not anymore. And so what do I do with this? What am I supposed to do with this information? Church attendance is declining, denominations are splitting, churches are closing at an increasingly concerning rate. Now, doesn't look great. And that's all on the society level. 
And you can add in there the things that are going on in your personal life. The stress you're facing. Um, maybe the weight of a season that feels like a new battle each and every day. And you just wake up and you feel like you're just getting ready for battle. And you're tired. Struggling to get out of the bed in the morning to face a new day. Like, how can you have hope in that season? Like, real hope, not fake hope. Like, real hope. Well, we are going to dig even further into that point next week, but I'm not just leaving, not a cliffhanger here. Because there is a question that we can ask God in our darkest moments that perhaps Israel was asking the moment they were being terrorized by Nineveh while reading the book of Nahum. God, is this fair? Is this fair? This doesn't seem fair. Nahum 2 is a reminder of God's justice that will bring that question of fairness into the light. He's not frustrated you ask him. He's not condemning you for asking. He wants to provide you comfort in your question. And he does so not by explaining your situation to you and all the reasons why it's happening to you, but rather he comforts you by carrying out righteous justice and bringing our eyes to him. That's how God comforts you, not by explaining everything about your situation, but by bringing your eyes to him. I want to read a quote by a woman named Emma Scrivener. She's a blogger and author who kind of talks about this intersection of God's justice and God's fairness. It'll be on the screen here. God's justice will bring a... Let me start again. God's justice will bring about far more than fairness or reward. It will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. My world is tiny, but the scriptures give a cosmic perspective. The wrongs that will be righted are breathtaking. And none of this will happen because of what I'm like, but because of what God is like. Thank you, Emma. And Grace Church, even on days or in weeks where you'd say, nothing's going right. Just, just nothing's going right. Nothing seems fair right now. We stay near to him. And we cling to the faith that all the wrongs will be righted, and guys, it will be breathtaking. It will take your breath away. Which leads us to number three. And finally, Nahum 2, ancient battle account, spotlights God's grace. The battle account ends after describing the plundering in Nineveh with a declaration of the city. If your Bibles are open in Nahum 2, look again at verse 10. This is the declaration over its city. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. That's the final picture of Nineveh for you. That's the final picture of Nineveh for history. Desolation. Do you see it? Isolation. Anguish and defeat. Now, Imagine reading this for the first time in the nation of Israel. Contrast that picture that God is leaving you with, with a picture of what Nineveh was like as they were reading it. Strength and power and might. And what we see in Nahum chapter 2 is a promise that in his sovereign grace, God will orchestrate a reversal. Because God hears the cries of his people who are pinned under oppression. 
And so Nineveh, who is now exercising its power over Jerusalem, will be desolate in due time. He hears the cries of his people. And the enemies of God will receive judgment while the people of God go free. And that very point gets us into the secret. That Nahum in writing this and Israel in hearing this will understand that this prophecy for Nineveh will be an echo of what happened at the Exodus. The Old Testament's always looking back at the Exodus. It is the premier, what we would call, gospel event of the Old Testament as far as the people in the Old Testament knew it. Their premier gospel event where God's grace was poured out. Where that they know that this is an echo of that so they can rejoice even now in difficult times because God heard the cries of his people in Egypt. And God brought them out of slavery through judgment marked by the blood of a spotless lamb. And his enemies were judged and his people went free. And it was purely by his grace. So Nahum's writing it, Israel's hearing it, and they're going back to the Exodus because it's an echo of a timeless truth. You, you see, God opposes the proud. He hates pride. Whether it be an entire city of Nineveh, the, the taunting of a people group, or the pride of every life then and now that gloats in this false satisfaction outside of him, he hates it, he opposes it. And while he will allow it to go for a time, for his purposes, its final picture is sure. Desolation. And he will bring judgment. And in that way, this message from Nahum 2 extends from a battlefield in the Middle East, east of the Tigris River, just north of Mosul, Iraq. And it goes into every human heart. That pride is a sickness that settles in. And he hates it. Because it eventually destroys us and it oppresses others. The foundation of oppression is pride. And we could go on living life like Nineveh was. Like everything is great because look at the success. Look at the power. Look at the wealth. Look how well I'm doing. But we need a reversal, you see. We need to be told, don't find that satisfaction in your success don't rely on it for your deepest hope, what you're doing in your career, how well your family's doing, how much money's in the bank account. Don't rely on those things. Don't let that be your deepest hope. Because if it is, when your circumstances change, you're going to crumble. So Israel will see what is happening with Nineveh, and they'll look back to Exodus. But church, we got a leg up. We have a leg up. Because as we read Nahum, we have a perspective of God's grace they didn't have. What is that perspective? In Mark chapter 1, Jesus was teaching in Galilee. It's the northern region of Israel. And a man with leprosy approaches him to be healed. Um, lepers were not allowed within the city gates. Because they had a contagious disease. They had and were seen and deemed by their society as having no hope. And so the outer signs of leprosy reveal a deeper problem that spreads quickly. So you have to remove them from everyone left, and you got to leave them to die. Leprosy was a living illustration of the fragility of the body, that one can go from healthy and strong to sick and dying very quickly. We all know it, which is in and of itself an illustration of all of life. All that to say that when this man approaches Jesus within the city gates, he comes from outside the gates into the city gates where Jesus is pleading with him to be made clean. I think it would have caused a scene. 
Can you picture that scene? What is he doing here? Why would he be putting Jesus in danger? What is happening right now? How did Jesus respond? Don't turn there, but look at the screen. Mark chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Hang with me here. Then the leper, fully restored, goes and shares the news. He was isolated, left to die outside the city gates, and now he's back, and he's healthy, and he's clean. But then Mark says, because the news got out, Jesus could no longer freely travel about, because he would be mobbed because of this miracle that just happened. So Mark says in Mark 1, he was driven out to the desolate places outside the city gates. Do you see the picture Mark painted? Jesus traded places with the leper. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. That God takes the judgment for sin and pride upon himself at the cross so that you can be freed from the penalty due to those who sin against him. From the sickness of pride that infects every human heart. And we read that he carried his cross where? Outside the city gates. To Calvary. He went to the desolate places. And he took the anguish and became an enemy of God. So that by faith in him, you may become among the people of God. This is the final picture of the gospel. He is our substitute. And that impacts your whole life. You know what that means? It means your lust that you struggle with? He takes it. Your pride in life and overlooking others, he, he takes it. Your greed, he takes it. Your racism, he takes it. Your selfishness, he takes it. And he pays the price while you stand cleansed, righteous, and perfect in the city gates. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God orchestrated a reversal. And he hears the cries of his people under the oppression of sin. And in Nahum, God pronounced judgment on the enemy so his people can go free. But in Jesus, God took the judgment upon himself so his people can go free. So those who place their faith in him, now we can sing with our full chest like we're about to stand and do these words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Father, we are increasingly, week after week, more grateful for your word. That it contains the secret to life. And life to the fullest, Lord, that we can see an ancient battle account, a prophecy of a city's downfall, and see how it leads to your son Jesus. To see that our lives, when we entrust them to you, will never lie in desolation. They will never be in ruins. That we can see your providence over all things and be able to face our life with poise and courage. That we can see your justice that 
all evil will be dealt with. And we can see your grace that you did not deal with us the evil that we deserved, but you gave us grace. You restored us. So allow that, Lord, to fuel our lives to live for your glory all the days of our life. Let it be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.